Hello and welcome to Counterculture. Now here we are in month number two of this lockdown and the crisis seems to be going on interminably. Uh, of course, one thing is for sure, uh, the ramifications of the COVID-19 crisis are going to go on for many, many months and certainly years. But what does this mean, first of all, for our relationship and our attitude to China and more generally, what would it mean as well for the whole idea of globalization, both in practice and in theory? Now, Civitas Think Tank has just produced a new report called The Year of the Bat, Globalization, China and the Coronavirus Crisis. And I'm delighted that today I'm joined by the two authors of that report. That's Dr. Neil McRae and Professor Michael Rainsborough. And here in the studio, Rafe Hadelmanku of the New Culture Forum, uh, the historian and commentator, who I should add, by the way, uh, had a rather nasty accident, broke his ankle a few weeks ago. But as you will know, because you can tell by your, the comments that you send in, uh, he's been with us. Thank you very much for doing that, being so, so heroic and coming in, uh, Rafe. Um, can I ask, start by asking you a very particular uh, question to get the ball rolling, gentlemen? Um, in your report, there was a one fact that sort of hit me, which was that 80% of the world's pharmaceuticals are produced in China. How did we arrive at that situation? Michael. Um, yeah, uh, we'll give a question to um, ask, and that, that's one of the central um, issues which we point to in terms of uh, how globalization has uh, got us into this um, state that we find ourselves in so reliant on china for our some of our fundamental medical supplies and uh, medical needs how did it get to this um it's probably a long story which you'll um, get into sort of later um but um i think the shortened version is really that um as a result of um what we call globalization um, particularly in its economic manifestation, which um, saw uh, the evolution of a um, of um, rapid economic um, uh, transactions, um, a world of hyper connectivity, particularly in terms of uh, the movement of capital and labour, all of which uh, technology has facilitated. But um, that what that uh, produced was. Um, was an economic system where it became very easy for multinational companies, um, facilitated, of course, by uh, the global governing um, elites, um, were able to outsource um, their manufacturing capacities to China, which, of course, um, is a repository of uh, very cheap labor, thereby maximizing the profits of uh, multinational companies, but also um, as a result of um, allowing China to participate um, uh, on equal trading terms, um, in some ways preferential trading terms within the WTO, which, to which China was admitted in 2002, it allowed Chinese companies to compete um, also. And um, that in itself has also led to the rise of um, Chinese um, corporations, which have been competing um, quite ruthlessly on the world stage and which also managed to suck in a lot of labour and capital into China. Um, 
I think it might be worthwhile at the moment, maybe uh, Neil, you could help us here. You know, we've lived with this term globalization for a very long time. And I think that people actually, it would be useful to spell out what was, if you like, the theory behind it. What was it actually about? Because one thing that I think is interesting from your report, the Civitas report, is that you talk about it theoretically and, you know, almost for a almost from a sort of slightly from a left-wing point of view, and then there's the economic one. Can you just explain that to us, uh, Neil? I think globalisation is something which has been very much pushed by the progressive, liberal, middle-class establishments in the West. Uh, these are people who are ashamed of their own countries, to be quite frank. I mean, look at their attitudes towards people with patriotic, uh, traditional um, attitudes. So they would prefer a post-nation order where countries and democratic systems no longer have any real power. Now, I think if you look at the World Health Organization, which we mentioned quite a lot in our report, mm. I think that demonstrates globalist ideology and its folly. So if you look at Tedros, the leader, chief of the World Health Organization, from the Western liberal perspective, he's the ideal person to head the organization. Uh, he's African with first-hand knowledge of third world problems, and he fits a decolonization agenda. Now, from China's perspective, he's even better. Uh, Tedros owes his position to Beijing and the support of its client states across Africa. But he's compromised by corruption in Ethiopia, where uh, Tedros was known to have covered up outbreaks of cholera. Now, he's dependent on China, so he's, he keeps his authority only as long as he complies with the the, the Chinese Communist Party line and, and parrots its propaganda. And we saw this, of course, with his sycophantic speech when visiting President Xi uh, back in January. Now, China knows that liberals in the West, that the political establishments in the West, won't criticize their man because of their obsessive sensitivity about racism. And this is the card that the regime in Beijing plays at every opportunity. So this, in short, is globalization. The West, in practice, ceding control to China. I see. I mean, is that, would you go along with that, Rafe? I mean, do, do you think, what seems to me is that China has sort of come, if you like, into prominence now because of this. but. This has been going on for a very long time. I mean, the, the dominance of China. Absolutely. Well, um, it, it, yeah. it, it's a process which for the last 30 years, we in the West have been fooling ourselves into thinking that by allowing China to access to our markets and into the WTO, that China would naturally liberalize its, itself. Um, whereas certainly it's been the contrary. And uh, China has actually uh, 
more or less fulfilled its strategy, which um, has been stated many times to be global domination by 2049. It's, it's the next 30 years, really, that really matter, because what we've seen, really, is China's strategy has always been to try to, firstly, preserve the regime. It's a, it's a one-party state. You know, communism is not necessarily the ideology of ideologies, if, as we've seen with the opening up to the market economy. It's more a question of preserving the, the, the regime trying to ensure that it's master of, it, of Asia first, but then reorienting Eurasia away from the Atlantic and America onto its own axis. And we've seen that with the One Belt, One Road policy. Uh, and so certainly what we're seeing right now is China fulfilling its grand strategy. And its grand strategy is basically to take command over two things, really. One is to take command over uh, big data. And so you're seeing that through its use of 5G networks around the world. Mm. And also really to ensure that it has a, a hold over over all those countries which America currently regards as being in its purview. And it's up to the West now, really, to try to offer up a, a solution in terms of trying to get places like Australia and South Korea and Taiwan to act as a containment buffer zone. Because really, we're entering into a period of Cold War. It's, a, it's the second Cold War we're having now with China. Mm -hmm. And yet we in the West have been too naive to realize that. People in China are fully aware that we're in a Cold War. But only people such as Trump have been alert to this. And it's taken the coronavirus to actually awaken people to the reality of what China is like in terms of its deceit, its, its, its lies, the way that it's infiltrated the WHO and so forth. So I, I, I'd like to just take up one point there, actually, because you mentioned the, something called Belt and Road policy, Rafe. Um, this is something which, you know, frankly, I, you know, I did not know about until it came up in the Italian context, you know, which you go into in the book. Can you explain, gentlemen, can you explain one of you quite what this is, this Belt and Road uh, policy uh, that China offers. Neil, do you want to take that on? Uh, well, uh, Belt and Road is really uh, the means for Chinese state imperialism. Now, China is is very keen to deny that it has any uh, imperial uh, um, aims. Um, China likes to um, differentiate itself from the, the colonial past of the Western powers. Um, but there's no doubt that the Belt and Road Initiative, which is about China investing in infrastructure projects in countries around the world. Yes, Neil, what, 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 what actually do they offer? What is it? Do they, they, what, they build, build roads? They build viaducts? What do they do? Well, they build roads, they build bridges, schools. Um, all kinds of um, uh, fabric of uh, society, which poorer countries struggle to afford. And uh, uh, China um, gives it, it its um, engineers and its um, expertise and its money. And of course, it wants that money paid back. And countries all across Africa, Central America, um, even Italy are in hock to China because they they participated in this Belt and Road Initiative, and now they're realizing um, it, it's like a much grander scale version of the, the 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 public finance initiative that built hospitals under Tony Blair. It's like that multiplied many times over. See, what was the actual situation? Uh, because you know, Italy was particularly badly hit, wasn't it? But this. This was something to do with the Belt and Roads policy, wasn't it? In fact, there was a kind of reciprocal arrangement, wasn't there? And that what, what meant that originally 
is that many thousands of Chinese workers came to this particular part of Italy. Isn't that the case, Wave? That's right. And basically what we're seeing is China is trying to raise basically divide and rule. It's an, it's an age-old age concept. And certainly, you know, for example, we saw during the coronavirus uh, crisis when uh, Italy pled for, uh, for, for a PPE from the rest of Europe and it wasn't forthcoming. China then stepped in to show that it was the great benevolent power able to supply things that Europe wouldn't. And it's this idea really to try to show itself as an alternative because it wants to basically put forward an alternative world order to the current world order. You know, for 200 years we've had the benefits of Britain in the 19th century and then America in the 20th century creating a, a global world order based upon the rights of man and democracy and so forth. But this is China trying to show how it can be an alternative and a successful one and it's basically look, using trade, it's using foreign aid, it's using investment and infrastructure and it's also taking advantage of the mistakes of the West to try to, to bulwark itself and, and, and put itself onto that pedestal and, and Italy during the coronavirus was just one example of that. So it's up to us to actually shine a light onto this because for too long um, we've basically been too scared to call China out. China is very good at what it calls wolf diplomacy, the, the ability of it to basically bully other countries into accusations of racism or xenophobia. If there's any accusation about Chinese corruption or China being in any way involved in nefarious activities, and so it's time for us to actually devise a united strategy to confront this. Uh, on that point, actually, yes, sorry, Mike, we are. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, Peter. Um, yeah, just to sort of pick up on those strands which uh, Neil and Rafe have um, made. Um, just to hopefully just put this into context and to relate it um, a little to your previous question, um, you know, how we got here and uh, how the West has um, yielded its, yielded it, its uh, preeminence to China um, in such a complacent manner. Globalization is really two, two things. One is a, a kind of a, a, a tangible manifestation of, um, of a sort of um, um, technological reality um, and economic reality. Um, you know, we have free trade, we have ease of travel, we have um, the realities of uh, the World Wide Web, all of which enhances global um, connectivity. And um, these are things which uh, we can see all around us and probably won't change all that much um, necessarily. Um, and maybe these are things which um, most of us, particularly in relation to free trade and ease of, um, ease of travel, we don't necessarily want to um, give up. But the second component of globalization is the ideological, political interpretations which are overlaid to that. So um, because people, uh, commentators, um, think that the world is um, embarked on a, a sort of process whereby you have this greater economic connectivity, free, you know, free move or um, freer movement of labor and capital. Um, the political interpretations overlaid that by a lot of commentators, particularly after the end of the Cold War, um, were that the world was embarked on this uh, road to a kind of harmonious convergence where we would all end up as um, well, in the world, in the world of uh, Francis Fukuyama, who was one of the first entrants in this debate, would have it. We're embarked on um, a liberal end of history, and that, as a result of the yeah debates of the ideological rivalries of uh, uh, rivals of um, you know the uh, communist Soviet Union, and of course the earlier defeat of fascism, um, that somehow we were all embarked on in towards the single endpoint, and that that China would actually be part of that um, part of that process. 
and that we are embarked on a sort of a post-ideological um, world, as someone like Tony Blair would have it. But as Rafe has quite rightly said, um, the Chinese Communist Party has um, completely different ideas and looks at that sort of rather fuzzy-minded, um, vacuous, cosmopolitan idea as something to be ruthlessly exploited, not to be part of. It's interesting, uh, you, 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 you mentioned the, the, the naivety. Uh, I think Rafe mentioned earlier as well, that some countries are sort of waking up. Um, Neil, um, you've written in The Reporter about Australia. Can you tell us sort of quite what, what they've been doing there in, in relation to China, uh, Chinese influence? Well, it was the Australians who um, many people in, in the West, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, drew our attention to what China was really up to. Um, now, in Australia and New Zealand for a long time, they've, they've had a large, um, large scale immigration from China and the Far East in, in both of those countries. And that, you know, that there was nothing particularly um, bad about that at all. And um, it was all celebrated as the West tends to do, uh, as multiculturalism. But what we've seen in, in the last 15 years or so, certainly uh, this has got worse under President Xi, is that Chinese people who move abroad are expected to act as foot soldiers for Chinese communist propaganda. Now, that's quite different from the Chinese diaspora of the past, uh, many of whom would be quite critical of China's past, recent past, under Chairman Mao, and of course, he, Chairman Mao was a was a mass murderer um, who ran a very very oppressive regime, and there, then there was a sort of liberalisation from the late 1970s onwards, and Chinese people generally felt reasonably free to um, uh, talk about their country in both positive and a neg and a negative light, but. What's been imposed on Chinese people now by President Xi, both in China and Chinese people who move abroad, is that they must stay loyal to the regime. Now, you might think, what sort of power can Beijing have over a student in Canberra? Now, I say Canberra because that's where Professor Clive Hamilton um, is based, and that was where he wrote his book, Silent Invasion, which is about the bullying of Chinese people abroad by, by uh, Beijing. Now, you think, well, what sort of power do they have? Well, most Chinese people in, in Australia, or indeed anywhere else in the world, they have family. They have family members back in China. And the regime has shown that it's quite willing if it can't directly punish somebody abroad, they will punish that person's family. And so these sort of bullying tactics have been going have been going on for quite a while now. And it was Professor Clive Hamilton that drew the world's attention to this. Uh, in Australia, they used to be very like they are still in Britain, uh, a very naive, as Rafe said, very naive kind of view about China. But now Australia has woken up to Chinese state interference in its democracy, in, uh, in its attempt to stifle freedom of speech in Australia. 
and all kinds of things that, that, that it's doing which are actually quite corrupt. So Australia has woken up to this now. And it's interesting how Australia was one of the first countries to demand an international inquiry into the COVID-19 crisis. And of course, the Chinese have behaved in very typical fashion, threatening the Australians, threatening to stop all trade, threatening to bring their students back. And, um, and that is the way that bullies behave. Isn't it um, the case, too, you talk in your report uh, about the, should we say, question mark over the very origins of the virus, you know? Um, and uh, this seems to be something which is, on the whole, not discussed until President Trump actually brought it up and said, you know, he has evidence. Um, this is sort of treated, isn't it, like an, almost like some sort of conspiracy theory, or rather it, th there is an attempt to treat it in that way. That's right. And of course, well, just to go back to Australia, Australia is in a very precarious position. It's a huge, it's a huge island with an immense amount of natural resources and a very small population. And its greatest ally, America, is much farther away than, than China is. And so Australia has now has finally w wakened up to this. But that mustn't, you know, distance mustn't let people in Europe think that we're anywhere, any less at risk than Australia is. But certainly, Australia needs to be backed up by the West, by Europe, in, in calling for an investigation on this. And it's, it's, it's embarrassment of China, which is basically the first tool, I would say, of our response and how we handle China, is to say, if you want to be a player on the world stage, you need to play by global standards. And you've been very sloppy in your handling of the coronavirus. And it's shame that the Chinese really can't abide. And Australia is trying to stand up to China, and it needs to have support from, from the West and from other European countries in a concerted effort. And one of those things is to have a full investigation mm. of what ha actually happened in Wuhan province. Mm. And without that investigation, we can't progress, and China is digging its heels in, but there needs to be a concerted, united effort by the West to demand an investigation, and it's an opportunity for the WHO to redeem itself after its shoddy and disreputable um, antics of the last little while to actually be there to also call for this investigation. What do you think, uh, Michael, what do you think the chances of, of the West taking that approach Rafe's just described there, in other words, being forthright about it and being, you know, going to an extent on the defensive, basically uh, asking for some form of accounting from China. You know, I think that if I remember what one German newspaper built actually said there should be reparations for this virus, as it were. I mean, do you think that's feasible? Do you think they're going to be take that seriously? Um, probably. I would have thought. I think the fact that issues are being raised uh, pressure is being raised on China, and not by governments, at least by uh, think tanks and commentators. Um, I think is a sign that people are rethinking um, the relationship between um, the West and and China. Now, I think as as it's been pointed out, you have had certain governments, Australia being one of them, um, the United States also being the other, and of course. Um, uh, the U.S. presidency of Donald Trump has been on China's case, particularly in trade terms, for, for quite a number of years now. Um, and um, all of this is establishing a kind of a momentum that may actually see China being put on the defensive. I think it has already, and I think it's the, the fact that it is resorting to these uh, rather sort of uh, bullying tactics is in itself a sign that um, 
it is it is feeling the heat a bit but it is as neil says it is going to um react in this way because it has got away with that sort of uh, um that sort of uh, action in the past where it, where it can browbeat some um, other other nations when it uh, when it doesn't get its way in the world. Um, so um, I don't think that uh, reparations um, is in any way going to be a starter. I think the Chinese Chinese state is simply going to um, block all um, ideas of that. I think it is going to continue to be um, obfuscatory um, on that. Um, I think it is continuing to going to be obstructive about the origins of the virus, which, um, as you as you cited in your question, we don't quite know where the virus came from. Um, there seem to be emerging two plausible um, scenarios for that. One was the uh, that it originated um, in the wet markets in Wuhan, um, but there is another potentially plausible. Um, idea that it uh, originated um, out of these experiments with, with bats from the Wuhan, Wuhan Institute of uh, Virology. But here's the, here's the thing, because we are dealing with a secretive Chinese state, we, um, we don't actually know, um, and maybe we'll never know the actual truth of this, but what all of these questions do, um, I think, or at least I hope, will supplant in the minds of people, is that China is not our friend, you know, not our friend as in um, a friend of the liberal democratic West. And if more people are waking up to that point, then I think that is um, a good thing because in the end, to preserve a liberal uh, world order, you need strong liberal state. You don't need uh, multinational institutions which are capable of being, of being manipulated by authoritarian regimes like China. I think uh, also one, one particular part of this sort of, or you could call it infiltration if you like, is, is the extraordinary influence that China has managed to get in universities in the West. And uh, um, I think um, as well you mentioned in the report, uh, Neil, about, I think Jesus College, isn't it, in Cambridge, has a China centre, which is sort of, you know, I think Charles Moore wrote about this, which is extraordinary, you know, if it was said about any other country, it's extraordinary. It's, sort of, it's, it's just sort of lionising China and lionising what's, what's happening. Um, wh wh how, do we, how do we actually sort of, how do we curtail the influence that China buys in this way, you know, as it were, in our institutions, Rafe? Well, the problem is that this, uh, it, it, it becoming enmeshed in China, which all nearly all of our universities are, certainly the, the, the leading universities, Russell Group, they're all um, very, very active in collaborations with Chinese universities. Um, and this is all related to two, it's two key things. Really. One is that um, money. Um, there's a steady flow of full fee paying Chinese students. And secondly, there is the globalist progressive mindset of university administrators. These university administrators are exactly the sort of people who I was talking about earlier, who are a post-nation mentality. They are embarrassed by tradition, by provincial, um, patriotic kind of view 
Uh, they don't consider themselves to be British universities. And that is a crucial point. They would rather have their um, universities filled by foreign students, including Chinese, than have to, have to provide higher education to the working class. I, I think there is a lot of this is pure snobbery. We're above being a British university. Now, th this is quite obvious, quite evident. If you look at the, the intranet outpourings of, the, um, of, 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 of any university, the, the stuff that staff and students are bombarded with every day. Now, universities are needing to rapidly and uh, urgently uh, reassess their relationships with Chinese institutions because let's face it they're not really dealing with an independent Chinese university all universities just as the major commercial enterprises in China are arm's length under the control of the Chinese government and the Chinese government has made it quite clear and we quoted this in the year of the bat report there was a leaked document from uh, the Communist Party meeting that said that, the ch that China must not allow or encourage any sense of Western liberal democratic ideas to flourish. China has its own way, and that is, it, it, well, it's basically, they'll call it this, of course, but basically it's a totalitarian, authoritarian surveillance state. That is what our universities are dealing with. They are dealing with a brutal regime that persecutes its minorities, that bullies um, other countries, particularly poor countries, and it produces cheap goods. Well, that's great, isn't it? We all enjoy cheap goods, but those cheap goods are produced in sweatshops. And some of them quite likely are produced in forced labor camps. Now, why aren't universities taking an interest in the provenance of, of, of China and Chinese products and Chinese trade? Why are they not making an issue about well-known abuses of human rights in China, such as the organ harvesting from Falun Gong practitioners and from the Uyghur Muslims. Why not? That's a question that I can't answer, and, but it's a question that needs to be asked. It's all the more remarkable given how hypersensitive universities are now in this era of wokeness where, you know, there will be a huge protest if somebody wears a sombrero and yet there's a remarkable silence when it comes to things like female genital mutilation or indeed the atrocities that you're seeing in China, not to mention the concentration camps there, you know, with three million people, you know, Muslims in China who are in, in, interred there. 
on the one hand, you could say that providing access to Chinese students in the West provides them an opportunity to see freedom and democracy in action and to actually experience what life is like under a free, under a free government. Uh, but at the same time, you have to understand how many of those people who are coming over are here to engage in industrial espionage. People forget, actually, that this is part and parcel of the Chinese policy, is to in infiltrate itself and embed itself within, within Western societies and learn, and learn the secrets of science and so forth. So one of the things that could be done, you know, universities need to have um, the income of foreign students to stay afloat these days. But if you're going to have that, at least have some sort of checks in terms of what sort of access you're providing to overseas students when it comes to sensitive information. And then, of course, there's another area of the Confucius Institutes, which are intended to act like a benign version of the British Council. They're attached to British universities. But in fact, <laughs> there's all sorts of evidence that these are actually cells working for the Chinese government. You, you make various uh, recommendations in the report, uh, Michael and uh, Neil. Um, can you, what, are the, what are the sort of chief ones? What, what actually do you think should happen, apart from our change of apart from a change of attitude? Yeah, um, so uh, a change of attitude is um, and we can talk about that for sure. Um, I think in terms of pragmatic, uh, policy responses, it would be things like um, we need to, and by we I mean, I'm probably saying British policy-making circles in particular, need to um, absorb the idea that, that China is first and foremost not a friendly power and should be treated as a, uh, uh, a, rival, um, um, a rival power, not, uh, not, a, uh, not Britain's best partner in the West, as George Osborne once phrased it. Um, that should entail a re-evaluation of um, things like the, um, the agreement to, um, to allow Huawei to participate in the building of uh, the 5G network. It should lead to, I'd suggest, deepening, trying to deepen relationships between um, the UK and more China-skeptic powers, particularly in um, uh, East and Southeast Asia. Um, I think we should also consider lessons from the Australian example, um, where um, Australia um, uh, Australia introduced um, counter interference laws in order to um, in order to counteract the influence peddling of um, of places like China, which which compels um, compels um, uh, public officials um, and institutions to disclose their funding and their foreign links. Um, so it would be be those sorts of things that I'd suggest that um, that um, we could take on take on board, as well as uh, the broader points about um, um, the general uh, idea that we should um, realize that we're, that the world is, is one um, not, of, um, not of sort of um, um, you know, this, this idea that we're all engaged on this process of um, you know, this multicultural Shangri-La. We're not embarked on any of that, uh, that kind of thing. Um, that the international system is one of competing sovereign states where nations struggle for survival. And um, that is that is the reality, and it can't be changed. And that sort of thinking has actually been lost, and it's been lost in some of the um, some of the important um, um, aspects of government thinking. Well, I think I think really we have to look at this really in terms of 
a new Cold War, as I said before. And if you think about it, it was in 1946 that Ch Churchill gave his Iron Curtain speech. Up to that point, everybody thought of the Soviet Union in friendly terms. And we're at that sort of a stage now where people are beginning to awaken to the fact that we're in the foothills, really, of what, of what is going to be a very long-term long uh, strategy of containment that we need to engage in to ensure that China doesn't exceed it, its, its, current, its current ambitions or fulfill them in any way. And that means we need to have a decoupling of our, ourselves from, from China. There has to be a, a concerted effort to ensure that our supply chains are put into strategically independent areas where we aren't reliant on China. Things like battery technology and, and things, you know, China has got all the lithium and all of these, uh, all these uh, resources. We need to ensure that we have abilities to actually produce things on our own without reliance on China for any of that. And there needs to be a, a united effort by the West to ensure that China's ambitions in the area are, are stood up to now rather than people f continually kowtowing to, 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 its, to its, you know, higher, higher echelons. Uh, really, I just want to ask Neil to finish, actually, uh, you know, carrying on from that point, uh, you talk about the twilight of globalisation in this report. Uh, if we are in, in the twilight, what actually would come Briefly, what would come after then? If, we, if this is going, if this is the way we've lived for, what, 30 years now, maybe, is going to end, what? Are we going to have a protectionist world? Or what kind of world are we going to have? This is all very difficult to predict because I think what we found with COVID-19 is that both sides of, in the culture war have tried to use this or, or, or tried to. Um, place this crisis as being a turning point in their favour. And I'm not sure that that will happen. I think that what we're li more likely to get is more polarisation. Now, I I've been reading a lot of articles from the, the what I see as the other side, the, the, the debate um, over coronavi coronavirus. And for example, there was an article by Matthew Dancona uh, George Osborne's buddy at the Evening Standard, arguing that it's not China that it, that's the problem, but it's Tories who complain about China. There was an article in Atlantic magazine recently where the writers urged the West to follow China in controlling speech and information and policing the internet. Now, that, of course, is the road to serfdom, but my worry is that this is the way a lot of younger people think, certainly middle class students who don't really value freedom of speech. They don't really value democracy or equality before the law. They've abandoned enlightenment values, as have their universities. And, and I think that somehow or other we've got to try and bring up a new generation that does appreciate enlightenment values, that does appreciate liberties. And I think there are some green shoots coming up that suggest that might happen. And I think if you look at the, the, the middle class woke sort of millennial generation, they think everything is going their way and will continue to go their way. But I, I think that it's likely that another generation will come along and reject their nonsense. You know, uh, this really uh, reminds me of President Trump's speech in Poland a few years ago. I think probably the best speech he's done, where he 
was basically saying, asking the question, does the West have the will to survive? Does, does the West, it all comes down to that. You were talking there, people, you know, believing in enlightenment values. It comes down to this, doesn't it? Whether we actually think um, that we should survive. I think that's the crucial point. Um, can I ask you, because uh, we're starting off now, how can people read your report? Can they download it or is it in hard copies? What should they do? Michael? I think, yeah, I, I, I understand me on my um, more information on this today, but um, as far as I'm aware, um, it is available for down, download or it can be downloaded um, and um, hard copies are also available, um, I s imagine, via the Civitas uh, website. Um, right, okay. But it's, yeah, yeah, I think Civitas, so basically you go to the Civitas website and you can download the, the report there, so it's really worth while reading, very, very important. Thank you very much, Rafe. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Neil, very much. Uh, that's, uh, that's counterculture for this week. I hope you uh, keep well and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much.